welcome to What Your GP Doesn't Tell You, the podcast for both doctors and patients with me, Liz Tucker. This week, I'm talking to Oxford University's Russell Foster, Professor of Circadian Neuroscience. He reveals the key role our circadian rhythms play, not just in controlling how and when we sleep, but in every aspect of our biology. Russell discusses his tips for getting a good night's sleep and what to do when you just can't drop off, and explores the huge toll that shift work takes on both our physical and mental health, so much so that the World Health Organization have described the link between shift work and cancer as probably carcinogenic. Russell goes on to explain why modern medicine needs to pay far more attention to the impact that our circadian rhythms have on our health. For example, did you know that if you take an aspirin for stroke prevention, it can be 50% more effective depending on the time of day you take it? And in a treatment for ovarian cancer, there was a fourfold difference depending on when the chemotherapy was taken. But before we get to Russell's interview, a brief request from me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to find out more, you can sign up to my Substack account which is liztucker.substack.com. Go to my podcast website at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com and follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker. And if you'd like to financially support the podcast, I'd really appreciate it. A huge amount of work goes into both the research and production of this. So even a small amount of money makes a huge difference. And you can provide support at patreon.com, whatyourgpdoesnttellyou, or via my website, which, as I mentioned, is whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. Many thanks. And now back to Russell's interview. Russell Foster is Professor of Circadian Neuroscience, Director of the Sir Jules Thorne Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute, and Head of the Nuffield Laboratory of Ophthalmology at Oxford University. He's a Fellow of the Royal Society and was awarded a CBE for his services to science. And Russell is also the author of the book, Lifetime, The New Science of the Body Clock and How It Can Revolutionise Your Health. Here's Russell's interview. So Russell, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. I'm really delighted to join you, Liz. I think, Russell, when we talk about circadian rhythms, people often assume that we're talking about sleep. But that's actually a slight misunderstanding because, in fact, our body clocks have an impact on how we function in many different ways. Well, absolutely. I mean, sleep is perhaps the most obvious of our 24-hour phenomena. But if you think about what our biology needs, it needs the right stuff at the right concentration delivered to the right tissues and organs at the right time of day. And you can think of our circadian system as being that central organizing principle to allow our biology to function effectively. And what is it within our body that controls this 24-hour body clock? So we can look at it at a sort of cellular level. And in mammals and humans, there's a master clock within the brain called the suprachiasmatic nuclei. If you imagine that the bridge of your nose, if you were to trace a line in on where your optic nerves go into the brain, it's a small cluster of cells, only about 50,000 cells, that sit just above where the optic nerves enter the brain and cross. But what's so remarkable is that each one of those cells has the capacity to generate a 24-hour oscillation. And, you know, when I entered the field some considerable time ago, the whole idea that a single cell could have its own circadian rhythm was just thought, well, no, that can't possibly be right. And the great discovery over the past 20, 20, 30 years has been that, in fact, there are a bunch of clock genes in those individual cells. They can be turned on, they code for a bunch of proteins, those proteins form a complex, they then move into the nucleus, they turn off their genes, those proteins are then degraded, and then the genes are turned on again, so you have a cycle of protein production and degradation, and that's the heart of the clock. The master clock is connected to the eye. And the eye has specialized photoreceptors, photoreceptors we discovered, in fact, called photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, completely different from the visual cells, the rods and cones. So you can lack all conscious vision, and yet you can still regulate your clock by these other cells within the eye. 
And what we thought up until again, relatively recently, was that master clock would impose, send out signals which would force rhythmicity on the organ systems of the body, the gut, the liver, the lungs, whatever. Now we know that every cell in the body has some capacity to generate that 24-hour rhythm. It's basically the same mechanism as within the master clock, the SCN. It's a bit like an orchestra. You've got this conductor sitting in the brain, producing a, a beat from which all of the component parts of the orchestra, you know, the, the cells and the organs of the body, take a reference cue and align their biology accordingly. And if we didn't have that conductor, then all the bits of the orchestra would play at a slightly different time. So in essence, that's the circadian system. And what sort of things will turn the genes on and off? Well, regulatory proteins. In 2017, the Nobel Prize was given to, to Hall, Roshbash and Young. They didn't discover how the clock worked in, in mammals, in mice, for example, or indeed humans. It was the fruit fly. And they discovered a bunch of genes and how those genes were regulated to produce their proteins and what those proteins then did about turning off their genes and how those proteins were then decayed. And then the genes were turned on once more. And so they got the Nobel Prize for that remarkable discovery, the first description of how a molecular clock could work. And what's turned out to be, I think, again, truly extraordinary, is that the basic building blocks of the molecular clock in all animals are broadly the same. Truly remarkable. And I have to say, when I entered the field in my PhD, what, 40 years ago, you know, so much of our assumptions have changed, which is why it's been so exciting, because it's really pushed forward not only our field, but the field of neuroscience. If you want to understand how genes give rise to proteins and how those proteins ultimately change behavior, the understanding of the molecular clockwork is the best example we've got. Now, Russell, you've mentioned that even some people who are blind can still have body clocks that function effectively. But that's not true for everyone, is it? Some people who have visual impairments have body clocks that are seriously damaged. Well, that's right. And I'm privileged to work with a charity, Blind Veterans UK, and work with individuals who either have very bad eye damage or they've lost their eyes. It's truly debilitating. I talk to these individuals and they, and they say, I, I feel as I'm constantly being tricked by my body. One chap told me that he had lost his eyes. But he was determined not to be the person with the messy garden. So he worked out a way of going to the shed, getting out the lawnmower. I mean, this is amazing. And cutting the lawn, determined to be independent. Wow. And one instance, he said that it was very distressing because my wife came down. And she tapped me on the shoulder and said, it's 3 a.m. in the morning. And of course, he thought it was daytime. And as I said, we discovered these these photoreceptors some time ago. But, but what's been so exciting for me is I work with a brilliant group of young researchers here in Oxford, and we're using our understanding of how those, those extraordinary photoreceptors regulate the molecular clockwork. And we've now got some drugs that can fool the master clock in the brain that it's seen light. So we've done the basic science side, we've done the first in human, we know the drug is safe. And we're now trying to get the funds to do the full clinical trials so that we can then give back a sense of time to the time blind. So what should happen to our bodies when we sleep? Can you explain what a healthy sleep pattern should look like? Yeah. And I think this is, again, a really important point, Liz, because we are screened at that we must get eight hours of sleep and it must be between certain times. And the first really key point to make is that sleep is like shoe size. One size does not fit all. And it's very important to know whether you're getting the sort of sleep that you need. Is it the appropriate time and is it the appropriate length? And so how do we know if we're getting enough sleep? Well, it's sort of thing that our grandparents would have told us, which is if you're able to function optimally during the day, you're almost certainly getting the, the right sort of sleep at night. But if you're dependent upon an alarm clock to get, get you out of bed or somebody else, if you oversleep extensively on free days, such as weekends or when you go away to holiday, if you take a long time to work up, you're feeling groggy, it's a sleep inertia. If you feel sleepy, irritable, fatigued when you are awake, if you crave a nap during the day, if you find yourself doing stupid and unreflective things, you know, if you're doing impulsive stuff and if you're craving sugar-rich and caffeine-rich drinks, you're not getting the sleep you need. And there's lots we can do. So many people think that we get the sleep that we're given. 
And that's not the case. There's an awful lot we can do about getting the sleep that we as individuals require for optimum performance during the day. So what's the biological process that we go through when we go through the various stages of sleep? So it's been described now for, what, 60, 70, maybe longer years by recording from electrodes from the surface of the skull on the skin, and that there's sort of a a quiet settling down, and then we descend into non-REM sleep. So essentially, we can describe the different stages of of sleep as either non-REM or REM. And non-REM is essentially an electrical oscillation. And what happens during that is that the brain oscillations get bigger and slower. And you get then into the deepest part of sleep or slow wave sleep. And during slow wave sleep, it's argued that this is where a lot of information processing goes on. This is where memory consolidation goes on. And then you bounce very rapidly from the non-REM sleep into the REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement sleep. And during REM sleep, you find that you're paralyzed from the neck down and your eyes are moving in their sockets. And during REM sleep is when we have our vivid and most complicated dreams. And it's thought that during REM sleep, we are dealing with our with our sort of emotional issues. The brain is processing emotional stuff. One interesting set of observations that supports that was asking individuals what their dream content was after the Twin Towers were destroyed. And this was asking New Yorkers. And it wasn't a recapitulation of planes going into skyscrapers, which would have been post-traumatic shock, which is a recapitulation of events. But what they were dreaming of being mugged or being overwhelmed by a tsunami. So very anxious types of dream content associated with this appalling trauma of the attack on the Twin Towers. Now, REM sleep is very interesting because we wake from REM sleep. We become either conscious or semi-conscious, and then we drop down from REM sleep back into non-REM sleep, and we can have a cycle of non-REM-REM. Each cycle takes 70 to 90 minutes, and we can have four or five of those across the night. And I suppose an awful lot of us can struggle to sleep from time to time. What can we do to try to improve our odds of getting a good night's sleep? Well, I think the first thing I'd say is that most of us don't have a sleep problem. We have an anxiety or a stress problem, which is preventing us getting to sleep, racing mind, for example, or if we wake, stress and anxiety that we won't get back to sleep. Now we have a, a clinical condition which is described as sleep anxiety. And I think this has been hugely augmented by people saying, you've got to get eight hours of sleep. A person came up to me a few years ago and said, I don't get eight hours of sleep. Am I going to die? And I said, well, yeah, you're going to die. But it may have nothing to do with how much sleep you know, you're getting. You're not getting eight hours. Well, that's one of the classic associations, isn't it? When they say if you get too much sleep, you know, you're more likely to die. Well, there might be all sorts of people who have illnesses and therefore sleep for longer. Yes. Which might yes. help explain, for example, that association. Well, that's exactly right, Liz. And, you know, it drives me crazy because you have every few years saying, oh, if you sleep longer than seven and a half hours, then, you know, you're much more likely. Do they know the health status of any of those individuals? They don't even know BMI. So it's just crazy. And I don't understand how some of this stuff gets published. Also, sleep anxiety is generated by these deeply inaccurate sleep apps. None of the sleep apps are endorsed by the sleep federations. None are FDA approved, and yet they report, oh, you've had a good night's sleep, a bad night's sleep, you're not getting enough slow wave sleep or REM sleep, and this is causing huge amounts of anxiety. So what do you need to do? And I think you can divide the sorts of interventions, either during the day, before bed, the bedroom itself, and then when you're in bed. But the key thing for me is during the day, get that morning light it's critical at setting the body clock to the external world. If you're tired and you want a nap, it's an indication you're not getting enough sleep at night. But if you do need a nap, it has been shown to improve your ability to function during the second half of the day. Make sure the nap is not longer than 20 minutes or so. Otherwise, you may fall into deeper sleep and it can be completely counterproductive. Exercise, very important. In addition to light, it can help set the body clock. Make sure it's not too close to bedtime because, of course, it can raise core body temperature and release a whole bunch of sort of endorphins and other stuff, 
which can make it more difficult to get off to sleep. You should avoid excessive consumption of caffeine. Stop about two o'clock. Some people are immensely sensitive to caffeine. And, and because it lasts in the body for quite some time, then afternoon coffee can delay sleep at night. That's actually, I should say, caffeine from both tea and coffee. And then at the end of the day, whatever it takes, whether it's mindfulness, whether it's yoga, whether it's a swim, but try and burn off some of the stress that you've been encountering during the day. Before bed, keep the lights low. The brighter the light, the greater the levels of alertness, and that will increase the time it takes to get to sleep. If you're using devices, if you're doing emails and stuff, then stop 30 to 60 minutes before your desired bedtime. Avoid prescription sedatives. Short-term use, okay. Longer-term use can be problematic, and I think all GPs would agree with this, and they will give you a short dose they also have the problem in the elderly of causing daytime sleepiness as well. And I should stress, they are a sedative. They do not mimic natural sleep. So some of the things going on in the brain, such as memory consolidation, information processing can be affected. Again, don't use alcohol to sedate yourself. That's a massive disruptor. I think one of the things, again, before bed, Many couples have such a pressurized day, they don't have time to talk. So you're lying in bed together and then you start to sort of talk about the important stuff. But my strong recommendation is you don't talk about family finances or things that are worrying before that episode, before you go to bed. My wife and I have a very strict rule now because she looks after all the finances. I do not want to know what the bank account looks like or what we can do about it before sleep. <laughs> And Russell, what about ebooks? Because there's been sort of suggestions that ebooks may not be a good thing. Yes, that's a really interesting study. And it's based upon a study that came out from Harvard. And they looked at the effect of a, an ebook on its brightest intensity, reading it for four hours on five consecutive nights. The press headlines were doctors say an ebook before you go to bed can damage your health. Well, if you look at the data, it delayed sleep and onset, and it was barely statistically significant. And after all, four hours on five consecutive nights is quite a hit, and it delayed sleep onset by barely 10 minutes. And as one of my colleagues said when this data was presented at a meeting, well, it may be statistically significant, but it's biologically meaningless. Now, some of the confusion has, has arisen because that light did change melatonin. Now, melatonin is called the sleep hormone. It is emphatically not. It is a very mild modulator of sleep. And so people are using melatonin changes as a measure of sleep-wake timing, and they are emphatically not the same. Russell, just picking up on the ebook point, there seems to be another factor as well. Because I know as an ebook user myself, when I'm using my ebook at night, I've got it on a very low light setting anyway. I never have it on the full light setting. I know. It is very frustrating. And there's a lot of nonsense out there. So when I say to people, melatonin isn't sleep hormone, there's an audible gasp. Because that's what you'll read in article after article. Not just the press, but by sloppy academics. You can see it's a bit of a hobby horse of mine. I apologise. <laughs> no, not at all. One thing that I find... I always read before I go to sleep. Yeah. And I'll be reading a book and falling asleep. So I think, well, I'll stop now and I'll drop off. And I turn the book off and then I'm awake for another 40 minutes. I don't sleep badly, but I've always been someone, when I stop doing whatever I'm doing, it takes me a period of time to go to sleep. But I always think, well, hang on a moment. I was just falling asleep when I was reading the book and now I'm awake again. This is it, because you've changed from going from one state, which is relaxing, to doing something else. And of course, you may associate withdrawal from that relaxing stimulus, and therefore you may inadvertently be alerting yourself. Lots of people did lots of different things. If I wake up in the night, for example, I'll listen to Radio 4 Extra. One thing that always does it for me is Lord Peter Whimsey. I get probably five, ten minutes into that, then I fall asleep, and I'll have to catch up with the episode at some other time. In the bedroom, I think the other things that we can do is make sure it's not too warm. Part of going to sleep involves a slight drop in core body temperature. And if the bedroom's too warm, you can't lose that core body temperature and it's more difficult to, to get to sleep. During lockdown, of course, bedrooms became offices. But as much as you can, remove the TVs, the computers and all the rest of it. 
Don't clock watch. So many people have an illuminated clock by the bed. They may wake up. They'll glance across and it'll say five o'clock or whatever. Think, oh, my goodness, I've only got two hours before the alarm goes off. Get terribly anxious about it and then won't go back to sleep. So cover up the dial or just get a different sort of of non-illuminated clock. And then the final thing is, is in bed. Keep it a routine. And we've talked about the importance of light, but actually eating at the same time and not eating too late, incidentally, but going to bed at the same time, both on free days and and work days is important. I think we Brits are a bit cheap and we don't like to spend a lot on mattresses and pillows. <laughs> you know, a third of our lives would be spent in bed. And I think I think it's the time we should allow major indulgence So lying back into a goose-filled pillow or whatever works for you, we should invest in a decent pillows, duvet and mattresses. One thing, I'm slightly reluctant to mention because the evidence base is not great, but relaxing oils. But so many people have said, oh, yeah, I define the bedroom on the basis of whether it's chamomile or whether it's lavender or whatever. And so when I enter that space, I know that's the space that I associate that smell with going to sleep. And so it's often combined with a hot milky drink. Now, the evidence that either a hot milky drink and lavender directly impinges on the circuits within the brain that regulate sleep, we don't have that data. But, you know, in a sense, it doesn't matter. If it works for you, then embrace it. Sort of sleep placebo effect. Yeah, I think so. And I think a lot of it is because it's anything that de-stresses. We call it a placebo because we don't understand the mechanisms, but it's probably acting on on the stress axis in some way. One important point is if your partner snores, and so many people ask me about this. And the first thing to make sure is they don't have obstructive sleep apnea because that's serious. And of course, what I mean by that is where the musculature of the throat relaxes, it, it blocks the airway. You can hear your partner stop breathing. Their brain then detects they're being oxygen deprived and will wake them up and there'll be a huge snorking and a a spluttering and then they'll fall back to sleep again. Now, that huge surge in blood pressure, it can cause damage to the small vasculature of the eye and the brain. And in fact, obstructive sleep apnea is associated with increased risk of coronary heart disease and other conditions. So assuming it's not that and assuming that earplugs don't work for you, then it's perfectly fine to get an alternative sleeping space. Now, many of us don't have that option, but if you do, I don't think it's a problem. Again, people say, oh, I can't. I've slept with this person for 25, 40, whatever it is, and it'll be the end of our relationship. No, it won't. It'll be the beginning of a better relationship. Yeah, you'll if you're be not cranky. You, you won't be cranky. You'll have greater empathy. You'll have all of those wonderful things that sleep actually provides. And what should you do if you wake up? stay calm. The default state of human sleep is not an eight-hour uninterrupted block. In the pre-industrial era, there's lots of descriptions of what's called biphasic and polyphasic sleep. And now people like Tom Weir have shown that if you bring people into the lab, you give them 12 hours of light, 12 hours of darkness, the sleep episode expands, and you get, again, much more likely to show biphasic and polyphasic. Key thing is if you wake up, It's not necessarily the end of sleep. You stay calm. You may want to leave the bed in the sleeping space. You may want to read a few pages of Jane Austen or whatever works for you. Keeping the lights low so you don't increase alertness will almost certainly increase your chances of falling back to sleep. So those are some of the tips to improve both our circadian health and also how to deal with sleep if it should become disturbed for whatever reason. But Russell, for those who do have a genuine sleep disorder, some form of sleep, circadian rhythm disruption known as SCRD, they do appear to be at higher risk of a number of diseases. Yeah. Well, short-term sleep disruption can impact upon one's emotional responses. So you see fluctuations of mood, increased irritability, anxiety, loss of empathy. You fail to pick up those social signals. You show frustration, increased risk-taking, really interesting one. People report, I thought I could get through the traffic lights before the red light. And I'd never do that under normal circumstances. And so that sort of stupid and impulsivity is is a hallmark. I think a very important area and some beautiful data on this is what's called a negative salience, is that the tired brain 
is much more likely to remember negative experiences than positive ones. And so if you're tired, your whole worldview is biased by sort of negative experiences. Very interesting one, multitasking. Multitasking isn't simply doing lots of things at the same time. It's actually filtering out what you need to do with lots of information coming in. And the ability to do that is hugely impacted by lack of sleep. Memory consolidation, attention all go, decision-making, creativity and productivity. So all of the things that you would need to be a human in the workforce are affected by actually relatively short-term sleep. And then the chronic impact, as you see in night shift workers and other sectors who are experiencing sustained shortened sleep, you get microsleeps, of course, and some really chilling statistics. The estimates vary, but between 100 and 300,000 crashes on the American uh, motorway system are people falling asleep at the wheel. And they tend to be very damaging crashes because you are asleep when you impact, so you can't respond. A big percentage of those are are fatal. But if you think, Russell, of the sorts of people doing shift work, I was going to say, for example, doctors, you don't really want to have a doctor who's got poor problem-solving skills, has an increased propensity for risk-taking. Yes. Doesn't sound a very attractive option. Well, absolutely. It's alarming that the dangers of lack of sleep are not actually reported within the medical community. For example, I mean, there was a study a few years ago looking at junior doctors finishing the night shift. 57% had either had a crash or a near miss driving home from the night shift. This is maddening. Gosh, yeah. And they're not advised the danger. One of the problems, if you're tired, and we may be the only species that can do this, we can override this sort of cognitive need for sleep by activating the stress axis. And of course, As you will know, short-term activation of the stress axis, really good. Like the first gear in a car, you've got that acceleration, you can either fight or run away. But if you keep the engine in first gear, you're going to destroy the engine. And that's the problem with sustained stress. As you see in night shift workers and the chronically tired, so what happens? Well, high stress cortisol, for example, the one thing we know about cortisol is that it's an immunosuppressive. So you're immune suppressed, increased chance of infection, and it may be the basis for why there are higher rates of cancer in night shift workers compared to day shift workers. Because I was amazed to see that the WHO has actually labelled the link between shift work and cancer as probably carcinogenic. Yeah, I bet that isn't the job description, is it? So, yes, this is serious. You've got the stress, the immune axis, but also you're preparing the body to fight and, and run. The blood pressure goes up. You're preparing to get more oxygen, more nutrients to muscles. You're throwing glucose into the circulation and high levels of glucose predisposing to metabolic syndrome and diabetes too. We also got clear evidence of the relationship between sleep disruption and an increased risk of mental illness and some work we've done in that space. Which comes first, Russell? I don't think you should look at it like that. Okay. In neurodevelopmental conditions, you know, particularly children, the rhythms are so bad, sleep-wake cycles massively disrupted, disrupting their educational opportunities and indeed the sleep of the entire family. In Alzheimer's, dementia, terrible sleep-wake patterns. We produced a model which has turned out to be a good reflection of that relationship between mental illness and sleep-wake disruption. And this was really because of observations I was doing on patients with schizophrenia whose rhythms weren't just bad. They were utterly smashed. I could not believe how bad it was. And so the model very simply was, okay, because the sleep and circadian systems draw from all the key brain neurotransmitter systems, if there's a change in a neurotransmitter that's predisposing you to mental illness of some sort, it's almost certainly going to have an effect upon sleep at some level. Evidence for that? Well, we've we've taken a gene that was associated with human schizophrenia, SNAP25, which then was mutated in a mouse, and the mouse actually showed sleep-wake disruption. So it's a really nice demonstration. And what's happened now is that genes that have been routinely linked to mental illness are now being shown to have a role in sleep and vice versa. So we've got that overlap. But of course, it's much more complicated than that, because of course, as we've discussed, the sleep and circadian rhythm disruption, because of its short-term impact upon emotional 
cognitive and of course physiological health can distort and exacerbate the mental health status and of course the poorer mental health status can feed back and make the sleep and circadian rhythm disruption if you partially stabilize their sleep you can actually halve the levels of paranoia and uh, hallucinatory experiences showing that we can think of uh, sleep and circadian stabilization as a therapeutic target I was really surprised to see the study that showed how much worse our cognitive abilities are in the middle of the night to the extent oh, yeah. that between 4am and 6am, it was actually worse than if participants had taken alcohol that would have made them legally drunk. Absolutely. Yeah, Drew Dawson did that study in Australia, and it's really breathtaking. The decrement in our cognitive abilities with alcohol when we're legally drunk is minus 15, but four, five o'clock in the morning, our ability to process information is minus 20. And I say to so many people piling the kids into the people carrier to get an extra day on the beach by driving somewhere, you wouldn't think of driving the family while you were drunk. But in a sense, that's the level of impairment of your cognitive abilities. And of course, accounting for traffic volume, that is the most dangerous time. There are more accidents per numbers of drivers than any other time of the day. So these are the problems, Russell. What can we do for a shift worker to mitigate them? This raises a very important issue which is not being properly addressed, which is essentially duty of care. So you can use devices that can detect if people are going to fall asleep and and can alert them that they are falling asleep. It's not a solution, but it stops them hurting themselves. Loss of vigilance in in the workplace, you can increase the levels of light. But I think a very important one is that the well-documented poor physical and mental health. Why aren't we instituting higher frequency health checks in those vulnerable individuals to stop some of these conditions becoming chronic? So, you know, diabetes 2, obesity, all that stuff, which is so much higher in night shift workers and the chronically tired than day shift workers. What kind of food do we provide our night shift workers? It could not be worse. Vending machines full of high sugar chocolate bars and the canteen will have high fat, high sugar food. Somebody needs to provide high protein, easy to digest snacks throughout the night for those individuals. At least give them the choice and that high fat and high sugar is not the only possibility. And, you know, in some sectors of night shift work, the divorce rate is some six times higher than the same job on the day shift. But this is kind of what you expect from driving your physiology outside of its normal range by night shift work or being chronically tired. So education, I think, is so important. I was talking to some NHS workers the other day and somebody from Occupational Health was saying, you know, we're using all of these sleep apps. And as we've touched on, the sleep apps, I think, taken with a pinch of salt. Variable ability to cope with morning shifts or day shifts or, or whatever. I think it's important to match the body clock type, the chronotype of an individual with the the shift work. So morning people ideally doing the morning shifts, late types doing the late shifts, because the greater the mismatch between your body clock type and when you're working, which is called in some cases social jet lag, the greater the vulnerability to all of the diseases that we've been talking about. Final area, and I think this is important, is that The longer you do night shift work or experience disruption, the greater the vulnerability to health problems. So maybe the advice should be, okay, you can do three years, four years, maybe five years on the night shift. Then you cycle out for five years and then you can go back. That could be one way to mitigate. The problem is, of course, is that people don't want to do night shift work driven because of economic circumstances. And do our body clocks change in any way as we age? Yeah, very markedly so. We tend to, from the age of 10 to late teens, early 20s, we we tend to want to go to bed later and later. That peaks in women about 19 and a half, men about 21. And then there's a slow move to a more early chronotype. So by the time we're in our late 50s, early 60s, we're getting up and going to bed at about the time we got up and went to bed when we were 10. That profile follows almost exactly the hormonal changes of estrogen, progesterone in women and testosterone in men. So there seems to be an influence there. So there's a difference between the sexes as well as between the ages? 
there's absolutely a difference between sex and age. Men tend to be later chronotypes compared to women. They go to bed later and get up later. And women seem to want longer duration sleep as well. The other thing that changes, in addition to one's chronotype, is the robustness of the circadian output. And that's why it's so important to have a strong exposure to light, dark cycle, regular meals, exercise to essentially increase the robustness of the timing of our circadian system. Of course, one thing which a lot of us struggle with is when we fly. Yes. The further we fly, the greater our jet lag. Yes. Is there anything we can do with this data to help minimise the effect? Yeah. Going west, flying, let's say, from London to New York is easier for most of us. And so when you get to New York, get out there, expose yourself to light, and that will drag you quickly to New York time. Now, there's a problem if you're flying east, and I experienced this when I was flying to Australia quite a bit, because you're still on London time, and you arrive in, let's say, Perth or Sydney, and you are experiencing light at a time that will delay your clock. It's dusk where you've come from. And so by experiencing morning light in Sydney, you're actually going to push the clock back towards Europe, whereas you want to want to get the light later when your body clock thinks it's morning, because that will advance it towards Australia. So the rule of thumb there is if you're arriving um, in Australia, let's say, or anywhere in the east, their morning, use sunglasses to minimise light exposure, and then in the mid mid-afternoon, take the sunglasses out, go for a walk, and that will then advance your clock and you'll adapt more quickly. And I've done that and it works. Melatonin, which is what everybody's told to take, is a mild modulator. It really has, and in some people, no effect at all. It is not a sleep hormone. It is a mild modulator of sleep. Light is the most overwhelmingly important factor. And sometimes you can you can speed up the rate at which you can lock on with melatonin. But it is, I stress, a mild modulator. It's not a jet lag pill. I must say, when I've taken it, I've never noticed any effects. No. And in fact, individuals who have a family history of mental illness shouldn't take it. That's the recommendation because it might interfere with some of the receptors, such as serotonin, which are modulating mood. I did try it when I was first traveling to Australia. And of course, this is an N of one. But I did find that my mood was much worse. And it was bizarre because I was in this amazing place and wanted to be there. But I felt a little depressed. So I stopped taking it. I think, Russell, one of the most fascinating areas for me in this whole area of research is chronopharmacology, which suggests that the time of day that we take a drug can have a major impact on its effectiveness. Why is that? Well, if we think of anti-cancer drugs, for example, a couple of studies, one in childhood leukaemia, looked at morning versus early evening application of some chemotherapy. Those kids that had it in the late afternoon, early evening, after, I think it was six years, 75% were still alive. Those that had it in the morning, 35% were still alive. So more than double? More than double. Same for ovarian cancer. After five years, one time of day, there was 45% survival. And in the other time of day, 10 So a massive difference. Uh, what's it due to? It's thought that what you've got with cancer cells is unrestricted cell division. And so what anti-cancer drugs often do is kill dividing cells. And so the argument is that if you can give that chemotherapy when the body's gut, liver, whatever, are not undergoing cell division, you're improving biological health of the individual, and they're more able to fight the cancer with their, an appropriate immune system. Whilst you're hitting the cancer and it's undergoing repeated cell division, so that seems to be the explanation. One very interesting issue, one bit of emerging research, is that cancer cells seem to have turned off their circadian clocks. So, so the clock seems to act as a break on unrestricted cell division. And when a clock is put back in a cancer cell, you can hugely reduce its proliferation. 
So another fascinating area which is just emerging is that the restoration of circadian rhythms in a cancer cell can actually turn its proliferation off. How do you do that, Russell? You can put back some of the key elements of the clock into the cell and restore a circadian oscillation. I mean, it's just so cool. Another area is, and a different sort of reason now, is if you think about when you take your antihypertensives. So very extensive studies have shown that there's a 50% greater chance of a stroke between 6 a.m. and 12 noon. In Germany, it's called the death window. And so this is well documented. So knowing there's that 6 a.m. to 12 noon vulnerability, when do you take your antihypertensives? Well, People would say, oh, well, we take it in the morning when the danger of the stroke occurs. But of course, the time you've taken the drug and the time it's been absorbed and then becomes activated, you're past the danger zone. And so the argument is, well, if you've got a drug with a long half-life, you take it before you go to bed, because then it'll still be at a high enough concentration to actually reduce that spike, that increased blood pressure rise in the morning. And a study coming from Spain looked at taking antihypertensives before bedtime or first thing in the morning. After 10 years, there was a 50% greater chance of not having a stroke with evening dosing rather than morning dosing. So that was a really interesting study. And that's because of the half-life of the drug interacting with this sharp rise in blood pressure that you get, which is partly circadian-driven, first thing in the morning, getting blood, nutrients to the tissues of the body. It does pay to take this into account. One's proton pump inhibitors because of acid reflux. When do you take them? Well, most people would say, well, I get acid reflux at night, so I'll take them before I go to bed. But actually, when these pills are in the stomach, they're activated partly by food. And that then causes the pumps to be turned off for 36 hours before a new set of proton pumps, acid pumps, can be made. So by taking them in the morning at breakfast with food, you're turning them off for the rest of the day. If you take them at night before you go to bed, you're not going to have food in the stomach. So you're far less effective at activating those proton pump inhibitors. So there are about, I think it's 200 different FDA approved drugs now with a time of day effect. Do we integrate this within our healthcare sector? We don't. But Russell, this is huge implications. If we just take a simple drug like aspirin, yeah. billions of people around the world who take a daily aspirin to reduce their risk of stroke or heart disease. Yes. This is like having a new drug entirely. Yeah. I mean, if you could produce a drug that reduced your chances of a stroke by 50%, um, you'd be off to Stockholm to collect your Nobel Prize. And yet we have those drugs and we haven't brought that into common medical practice. I, I would also add another really important area is in drug discovery. So if you think about it, most of our drugs are tested on a nocturnal mouse and then extrapolated straight to a diurnal human. And there was a drug that has been developed to reduce the effects of stroke. And it was tested on mice. The researchers gave it to the mice in the morning when they got into work, and it had a big effect at reducing the size of the stroke. When this was tried in humans, giving the drug in the morning, it didn't have any effect at all. What they then finally twigged, the morning was the beginning of the human wake phase, the morning for a mouse is the beginning of the sleep phase. They went back and gave it to mice at the beginning of the wake phase, at the beginning of the night, rather than the beginning of the day. It didn't work. And so I don't think dangerous drugs have got to market because they were tested at the wrong time. The real terror I have is that really promising drugs, which when tested at the wrong time, were thought not to be of any use. And they're sitting on the shelves of laboratories, pharmaceutical companies all over the world. There has been an argument that um, we need to go back and do time of day testing for many of these drugs that look promising, but have not actually been taken further. So basically, there's a misunderstanding that when we have a disease, level of the disease is constant throughout the 24 hour period. Yes. And in fact, there are major peaks and troughs. And depending if you hit it at a peak or a trough, has a huge impact on how effective that drug is. Well, completely. And of course, part of the problem is that as biologists and medics, one of the first lectures we get is on homeostasis. 
And the father of the discipline, I think Claude Bernard said, of all the physiological functions, no matter how varied they are, they have but to one end, the constancy of the internal environment. And deviations away from the set point were considered a breakdown in physiology, not an adaptive response. And so the whole concept of a dynamic physiology is not really introduced into medical training. Good blood pressure is uh, what 120 over 70, uh, 80, but it can drop. It can halve to half that in the early hours of the morning. One of my my friends at Harvard said that medical students are taught about what blood pressure should be. You've had your, let's say, your heart attack. You've gone into hospital, and then the inexperienced intern comes in and sees that blood pressure is dropping, assumes the heart is failing, so then gives stimulants to drive the heart up to what has been the accepted taught level and then of course drives a weakened heart way outside of its physiological range at that time of day and then can precipitate a fatal heart attack and the student will say look I did my best but the heart was failing but unwittingly has actually caused that heart attack. That was a story told to me by a clinician at Harvard and and then raises the big question why haven't we taken this on board and I think the answer is straightforward. Half of my um, family are medics, so we have interesting discussions about this. The bottom line is, they say we're running as fast as we can to stay where we are. But I also think they tend to think it's a marginal gain. Interesting thing, it might make a tiny difference, but it's not major. It's not worth it, yeah. And those that accept that it has an effect just say, we just don't have the bandwidth to take this on. I mean, I I think we're changing the minds and the attitudes slowly. But it's taking an awful long time. A clinician yesterday, when I was with a family member, told me it made no difference at all what time of day someone took an aspirin. Yeah, and the data there were very clear. So part of the logic for writing the book was this information is there, and one needs to ask one's GP, what time of day do I take this? The GP won't know, but if they're any good, they'll think, I should know this, and they'll start to look it up. And so I think it's moving, but I think it's going to require Uh, sort of ground up as well as a a teaching top-down approach to get us everybody aligned on this. Because, I mean, I was genuinely surprised. I wasn't surprised that there was an effect, but we're talking sometimes two times, sometimes four times effect. Exactly. Yeah. And, And of course, it makes sense, you know, because our biology is not stable. And as soon as you take that on board, and and understand it's dynamic, then it's no great surprise that drugs have different effects at different times. Obviously, it's got to be training for the generation coming through, but also I think it's got to be patient-driven as well. I give 920 references in the back of Lifetime. So get the paper, and most of it's in the public domain, and just take it along. If the GP says, I don't think it makes a difference, and say, well, I'd, I'd appreciate your view of this. Now, you may not be necessarily very popular, but I think if we all started doing that, there would be a change in the mindset. It's a changing landscape, but I think that if you are on drugs, it's worth looking up the time you should take them. But Russell, have you and your colleagues approached organisations like the UK's National Institute of Clinical Excellence, NICE, that sets clinical guidelines Um, to say this is something we think you should really look at? No, we haven't. I mean, you know, you raise a very good point. What we've done is try and develop educational programs and things like the book, but we haven't actually gone to NICE about time of day effects. The the good news is that sort of biomedical research centres, which are working with the NHS, there are specific initiatives now on circadian rhythms. And so we've got one on circadian rhythms and sleep here in Oxford. And we do work very closely with our clinical colleagues. So I think in research departments, we get better traction. It, it's an illustration of the, the some of the very entrenched views that we still have in medicine, and particularly in institutions that don't have a strong research base. Now, that sounds arrogant. I don't mean it to be. It just so happens that we've got a bunch of research clinician scientists whose aim is to try and improve treatment. And so they're sensitive to anything that may be on the horizon. Other places, they just don't have the bandwidth to take this on board. They they adopt the medical training that they've had and respond accordingly. 
But when you talk about ovarian cancer, which is one of the cancers which has a terrible success rate yes. in treatment, yes. and you're reporting a four times yes. difference in treatment for a disease which is so hard to treat, it's almost to me unbelievable that it's not being looked at more closely. Well, the chap who, who did this, Bill Horesky, he's been battering on. I remember hearing him speak when I first went over to the States. I worked in the States for eight years, and that would have been sometime in the late 80s. And we, we had a call actually fairly recently, and he said, you know, it's glacial in, in the way I'm getting traction on this. It is changing in some departments. And so, for example, in stroke, a big department are taking this into account. But in cancer, I think it's really not got much traction. Part of the argument is that, well, we have to give the drugs when we've got capacity to do it. But actually, people like Francis Levy, who's in both Paris and Warwick, he now talks about sort of the ambulatory pumps, which can deliver these anti-cancer drugs at a specific time in the home environment. You don't actually have to be in a hospital and hooked up. So the barriers for giving timed application of chemotherapy are not so great as they used to be. We've got some of the mechanisms that could be useful. So is that really for you, Russell, the major change you'd like to see in medical practice over the next 10 years or so? Yeah, I think there's two things for me. Um, one is the education, and I'm passionate about that. I enjoy teaching enormously, and, and so it's a great privilege to teach the generation coming through. They are receptive and excited. We've got the first master's degree in sleep medicine, which actually covers circadian rhythms. Uh, and it's an online course. And we're getting that message out to lots of people all over the world. So that's one point. But the second is to use this extraordinary advance in our knowledge of what makes a circadian rhythm tick and how we can regulate it for developing interventions. We talked about these new drugs that we want to give back a sense of time to the, the time blind, profoundly blind, but also in other sectors such as mental illness, neurodevelopmental conditions, and dementia and Alzheimer's. The reason my kids will send me off to a nursing home is not because I'm talking nonsense. I've appreciated that for years, but it's because I'll be wandering around terrifying the grandchildren, waking everybody up. And actually, if you could stabilize sleep wake in dementia and Alzheimer's, it's a massive cost-saving pragmatically, because you won't have to, in effect, institutionalize individuals before their time. And the second thing, the huge impact it has on the emotions and, of course, finances of families. And so I think that the future is very exciting for understanding circadian knowledge to develop new drugs. We touched on the relationship between circadian rhythms and cancer. If we can get drugs that can arrest cellular division by putting back a clock. People are working on those drugs now. I think there's huge opportunities. So yeah, I think it is an immensely exciting time to be in this field because we can now build on this extraordinary bank of knowledge. Well, Russell, thank you so much for talking today. Absolutely fascinating. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure, Liz. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye. Yes. Hope you enjoyed the latest episode of the podcast. And a reminder, you can follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker and sign up to the podcast mailing list at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. Many thanks for listening. Bye for now.